welcome to this month's JNMP podcast. And this month we're going to be discussing Kennedy's disease and post-stroke psychosis. I'm joined first of all by Dr. Carlo Rinaldi, who's a Wellcome Trust clinician scientist and an honorary consultant neurologist at the University of Oxford. And we're going to be discussing his recent paper in the JNMP, looking at the expansion of the clinical spectrum in Kennedy's disease. So Carlo, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start off by asking about the traditional view of Kennedy's disease. Um, how is it sort of con- traditionally viewed and, and how is that changing? Yeah, so spinal and bulbar muscular atrophy, SBMA or Kennedy's disease, uh, named after the neurologist who published an early description, a clinical description, uh, is a gradually progressive neuromuscular disorder in which degeneration of bulbar and spinal lower motor neurons result in atrophy and fasciculations of the tongue lips or perioral region, and dysartria and difficulty swallowing uh, with muscle weakness and atrophy of the limbs, respectively. So affected individuals often also show signs of androgen insensitivity, often in early stage of the disease, including gynecomastia, testicular atrophy, uh, and reduced fertility. The disease is caused by an abnormal expansion of a CAG tandem repeat in the androgen receptor gene encoding a polyglutamine stretch in the corresponding protein. And affected individuals carry a number of CAG repeats of 34 or fewer. And subjects who have more than 38 CAG repeats invariably manifest the disease. The disease is transmitted in an X-linked fashion, therefore only males are fully affected. And females who are carriers of full penetrance alleles of greater than 38 CAG repeats in the androgen receptor are usually asymptomatic but can experience in life muscle cramps or occasional tremors more frequently than the normal population. The carrier population is largely understudied and certainly deserves further attention. Disease onset ranges from about years to 64 ages. SPMA has an estimated prevalence between one in 50,000 to one in 300,000 males. And the reason of this discrepancy is that the disease is often misdiagnosed uh, as other more prevalent neuromuscular conditions, such as uh, ALS, for example. And the combination of spinal and bulbar symptoms with the androgen insensitivity syndrome, the fact that the disease only affects males and the progression of the disease course uh, with muscle strength declining by about 2% per year, which is relatively slower than ALS, should help getting the diagnosis right. So the most worrisome complication in SBMA result from bulbar weakness, uh, as these complications, uh, asphyxiation or aspiration of pneumonia, can be life-threatening. In the last two decades, an increasing number of observations derived from preclinical studies and patient samples have certainly indicated that SBMA is a multisystemic condition with previously unrecognized features, uh, frequently manifesting early in the disease course. So understanding and studying these new features is incredibly important and serve three scopes. First of all, my result in a better clinical management of patients with Kennedy's disease. Second, can shed new lights into the mechanism of disease pathogenesis. And third, may offer uh, opportunities for biomarker discovery and treatment, as we will discuss later on. So this is particularly important for SBMA as this is a disease with an unmet clinical need. Also, it's relatively slow in progression, so we really need a reliable biomarker to follow disease activity and response to therapy in clinical trials. 
So, I mean, obviously it sounds like the traditional view of Kennedy's is predominantly as a neuromuscular disease. And of course, this is evolving as we understand the sort of multi-systemic nature of it. Um, your paper discusses skeletal muscle and that's potential role in pathogenesis. I wondered if you could just tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so rather than being a mere bystander of motor neuron degeneration, skeletal muscle in SPMA appears to be primarily involved in the disease. Patients with SPMA usually have mildly elevated levels of serum creatine kinase, for example, and frequently this increase can be detected prior to the onset of the canonical SPMA clinical symptoms. Histological studies on muscle biopsies also have shown the presence of both signs of chronic denervation with fiber type grouping, atrophic fibers, angulated fibers, together with signs of primary myogenic defects, such as necrotic myofibers, as well as myofibers with centrally located nuclei. Primary myoblasts isolated from patients with SPMA show a selective impairment of myogenesis. Work in the various animal models of the disease have corroborated these findings. So neurogenic and myopathic processes occur in SPMA mouse models as well. And the expression of the poly-Q androgen receptor in muscle only leads to a phenotype that resembles SPMA, whereas expression in peripheral tissues but skeletal muscle prevents development of disease manifestations. Finally, muscle fibers are classified into type 1 slow oxidative, type 2A fast oxidative, and type 2B fast glycolytic fibers. And typically, muscles contain all types of fibers innervated by their corresponding motor neurons. However, the ratio between slow and fast fiber types varies between muscles so as to suit each uh, muscle's function. And muscle of SPMA subjects and mice demonstrate a glycolytic to oxidative switching over the course of the disease. And I mean, to move on from pathogenesis and, and more into sort of therapeutic targets, which of course is always the end goal, how do those non-motor symptoms or the expansion of the understanding of Kennedy's, how does that offer opportunity for targets um, for therapy? Thanks for asking this question. I think this is probably the most exciting aspect of studying uh, muscle and the role of muscle in, in SBMA. Uh, so what we have found is that disease manifestations in transgenic mice can be reverted or at least uh, significantly ameliorated by a genetic correction or treatments only targeting skeletal muscle. This is the case for muscle-specific genetic overexpression, for example, or administration of insulin-like growth factor 1, which promotes androgen receptor degradation through phosphorylation of AKT, or more recently, knockdown of the mutant androgen receptor in muscle only using, again, either a genetic approach or a peripherally administered antisense oligonucleotide. So many questions still remain. For example, how poly-Q androgen receptor causes the muscle atrophy in SPMA and how muscle is able to have a retrograde effect on motor neurons. Certainly, altogether, these observations support the idea that skeletal muscle primarily degenerates in the disease, therefore is primarily involved in the pathogenesis, and possibly this is a contributing factor even to motor neuron degeneration. And they, what they tell us is that muscle is a potential target for therapy development. And this is incredibly relevant as muscle, as you might well understand, is a, an easier 
tissue to reach for pharmacological interventions compared to motor neurons. Thinking beyond muscle features that may be present in Kennedy's, I wondered if you could expand on the other sorts of non-motor features that you outlined in your paper, and particularly thinking about sort of patient quality of life and, and the importance of acknowledging that and, and viewing Kennedy's as a multi-system disease. Along with muscular weakness, patients with SPMA may often complain of sensory disturbances, including numbness and tingling in lower limbs as a result of a primary sensory neuronopathy. Autonomic skin denervation with impaired sweat testing has been reported in few SPMA cases. And evidence of metabolic dysfunction has also been identified from several studies across the globe. Patients with SPMA, including increased level of cholesterol and triglyceride and increased insulin resistance. Dysfunction in the liver may be a contributing factor to these changes in metabolism. Evidence of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis was detected by magnetic resonance spectroscopy and further confirmed by liver biopsies in nearly all the participants with SPMA evaluated in a recent study, despite normal body mass index. Several other abnormalities in serum of SPMA patients have been reported, including increases in CK, which we have discussed before, aspartate aminotransferase, alanine aminotransferase, for example. Low levels of creatinine is a very frequent finding which correlates with functional measurements such as grip strength and the six-minute walk distance, suggesting a possible role of creatinine uh, as a biomarker. Among all non-motor features in SPMA, one that deserves particular attention is certainly the Brugada syndrome. This syndrome is a disorder characterized by an ECG uh, pattern of incomplete right bundle branch block and ST segment elevations in the anterior precordial leads. And up to 12% of the SBMA patients with Brugada have Brugada syndrome-like alterations. And importantly, these abnormalities can be detected with ECG and a simple modification in the conventional lead position significantly improves the detection of this defect and is very much recommended. Brugada syndrome can lead to sudden death and screening of these abnormalities should become routine in patients with SPMA. And in case of Brugada syndrome, certain medications should be avoided. Treatment of Brugada syndrome include use of antiarrhythmics and placement of implantable cardioverter defibrillator. I mean, it certainly sounds like there's lots of things going on there in Kennedy's disease, and, and it really is very important for clinicians and patients as well, to, of course, to be aware of the non-motor symptoms that may manifest, because it sounds like they do, you know, very potentially impact on their care and also their management. Absolutely. Uh, so extra motor features in SPMA, uh, such as the primary muscle atrophy or the hormonal abnormalities, are emerging as clinically highly impactful in the patient's quality of life and even in the disease progression. Studying these features is absolutely critical, and this is for a number of reasons. First, they provide an important insight into common mechanisms of disease pathogenesis. The mutant androgen receptor is expressed ubiquitously in all cells of the body, uh, and the clinical picture is the result of a complex interplay between differentially affected tissues, which in a way struggle to cooperate to maintain uh, homeostasis. And second, the peripheral abnormalities may offer an opportunity for direct functional assessments or repetitive samplings, therefore potentially exploitable biomarkers to track disease progression and response to therapy. 
This might be the case, for example, for creatinine, which we have discussed earlier. And lastly, disentangling the underlying molecular mechanisms of this highly integrated intertissue crosstalk may offer unparalleled opportunities for therapeutic interventions in the near future. For example, targeting muscle to stem motor neuron degenerations in SBMA is potentially a paradigm shift. Evidence from other models of diseases of motor unit, SMA, for example, or even certain forms of ALS, showing that treating muscle ameliorates the disease phenotypes in preclinical models of these diseases, also suggests that this might be a common feature of other diseases of the motor unit. Absolutely. Carlo, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. So that was Dr. Carlo Rinaldi from the University of Oxford, and he was talking about his recent paper in the JNMP looking at the Kennedy's disease, in particular the clinical expansion of the spectrum. And you can, of course, download it for free on jnmp.bmj.com. We're now going to discuss post-stroke syndromes, in particular the prevalence and impact of post-stroke psychosis. I'm joined by the primary author of a JNMP review, Hela Stangeland, from the Division of Clinical Neuroscience at the Oslo University Hospital in Norway, as well as senior author Vaughan Bell from the Division of Psychiatry, University College London in the UK. So Hela and Vaughan, welcome to you both to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I wondered if you could firstly sort of tell us about post-stroke syndromes, in particular sort of variability and, and what symptoms come up. In particular, sort of how often do neuropsychiatric symptoms occur? So uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms uh, that follow stroke are actually quite common and severely impact quality of life among stroke survivors. Uh, so these are symptoms that resemble classical uh, psychiatric disorders such as uh, depression, anxiety, and psychosis uh, that are considered attributable to having a stroke or a cerebrovascular accident. And now, unfortunately, these types of symptoms are often underdiagnosed, uh, but it has been estimated that at least 30% of uh, stroke survivors will develop some form of uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms after stroke. The most common syndromes uh, include uh, depression, anxiety, uh, and apathy, which occur in as much as 20 to 30 percent, uh, whereas other syndromes uh, such as psychosis, uh, mania, and personality changes are considered less common and have been less researched so far. Um, however, based on our findings, uh, we found that approximately 5 percent of patients with uh, post-acute stroke, develop post-stroke psychosis, indicating that uh, the prevalence actually may be greater than previously assumed. So perhaps slightly less common, but, but certainly no less severe. So what did your JNMP review aim to investigate? Well, really, we aim to just take a really broad review of everything that had been published about post-stroke psychosis, because one of the things that really struck us is that there was very little attempt to actually summarize and synthesize the evidence in this area. In fact, we, we only found one previous review, which was a book chapter, and absolutely no systematic review at all. So our review really aimed to take a really broad view, look at um, you know, epidemiology, uh, look at impact, look at phenomenology, look at neuroanatomy, and just really synthesize this, this 
you know, quite disparate amount of evidence into concise review that would be both scientifically interesting and hopefully of clinical use as well. I mean, your review certainly comes across with a huge wealth of findings in it, which, of course, the listeners can um, download for free, janemp.com. But I wondered if you could, we could sort of break down your findings into bite-sized sections, just for the sake of the listeners and myself, particularly starting with perhaps the sort of epidemiological prevalence of post-stroke psychosis. So um, as Vaughn just mentioned, we wanted to learn, obviously, as much as possible about this condition. Uh, so we have looked at a lot of different factors here, but I'll try and summarize our results as well as I can. I can mention that overall we included uh, 76 studies uh, and that the majority of these were uh, case series and uh, case reports. Uh, but we also found uh, seven uh, larger, more uh, systematic studies as well. And based on these studies, we found that the average age of individuals with post-stroke psychosis uh, was 66.6 years, uh, and that slightly more men than women were affected. Moreover, we found that approximately 80% of patients were reported with ischemic strokes, whereas 18% were reported with hemorrhagic strokes, and about 2% with uh, transient ischemic attacks or mini strokes. Now these numbers are uh, in terms of stroke type comparable to the general population uh, so they do not necessarily indicate that uh, stroke type is a risk factor for post-stroke psychosis. Um, moreover we also found that the most common presenting symptoms were classical neurological symptoms such as left-sided weakness, uh, headache and slurred speech. Now again, uh, these are common presenting symptoms of general stroke, so they may not represent predictors of psychosis, uh, although they may indicate uh, having a lesion in the right hemisphere, which I think Vaughn will talk a little bit more about uh, in a bit. Interestingly, we also found that about 8% of these individuals presented with otherwise silent strokes, uh, meaning that apart from the psychotic symptoms, that they experienced, and there were no uh, neurological symptoms uh, indicating a stroke. And this might mean that because the stroke cause may be difficult to detect, can be difficult to provide these individuals with the proper treatment that they need until this is found. The most common form of psychosis was uh, delusional disorder, so um, delusions without the presence of hallucinations followed by schizophrenia-like disorder, uh, so presence of hallucinations as well as delusions, and finally, uh, mood disorder with uh, psychotic features. In terms of other risk factors, uh, we also found that the majority of patients did not have a previous psychiatric disorder, so this does not seem to be a risk factor for post-stroke psychosis. Other common medical risk factors included hypertension, hyperlipidemia and diabetes, which are all general risk factors for stroke, but may not predict post-stroke psychosis in particular. We also found four systematic studies that reported prevalence rates of delusions and hallucinations after stroke. Uh, and based on these, we conducted a meta-analysis and estimated a combined prevalence of 4.86%. So again, as I mentioned at the beginning, prevalence of post-stroke psychosis may be greater than previously assumed, 
and I think previous studies have estimated post-stroke psychosis to be prevalent between 0.5 to 3%. We also found uh, one study that reported a long-term incidence rate of post-stroke psychosis, and this found a cumulative incidence rate of 6.7% for psychosis in people without prior psychiatric disorder during the 12 years uh, after first stroke. In terms of long-term outcomes, uh, we also found four studies that looked at these. These reported that the presence of hallucinations and delusions changed less than 5% within the course of a year, uh, which suggests that these types of neuropsychiatric symptoms uh, may remain fairly stable over time. Moreover, this study found that uh, stroke patients that could not be discharged to an independent living situation uh, within the course of a year experienced significantly more psychotic symptoms compared to those who could be discharged. Another study also found that compared to stroke patients without neuropsychiatric symptoms, Patients with post-stroke psychosis in particular were 51% more likely to die during a 10-year follow-up period. And patients with post-stroke psychosis also had the lowest survival rate compared with stroke survivors with other psychiatric disorders. And the most frequent cause of death was cardiovascular disease. So overall, uh, this evidence suggests that the long-term outcomes for post-stroke psychosis are generally poor and uh, that these individuals may experience greater difficulties coping with the consequences of stroke and may be more likely to depend on assistance in everyday life compared to other stroke survivors. And there's certainly a lot of implications there in terms of the long-term care of these patients suffering from post-stroke psychosis and of course some worrying results there about perhaps increased mortality. I wondered if you could talk about whether any of the studies looked at treatment of post-stroke psychosis, if there's anything in the literature about that. So uh, regrettably we, we could not find any study that formally aimed to evaluate uh, treatment options for post-stroke psychosis. However, uh, based on the evidence that we did find, uh, we saw that antipsychotic medication uh, was the most common form of treatment with haloperidol and risperidone being the most frequently described, followed by quetiapine and olanzapine. Now it's worth noting uh, that these are medications that have been linked to very serious side effect profiles that include dyskinesias as well as weight gain, and especially risperidone has also been identified as a risk factor for developing stroke itself. Um, so this is a great cause for concern that we've found because so many uh, individuals with post-stroke psychosis are prescribed antipsychotic medication uh, when there's no clinical trial that has evaluated its effectiveness, whether it's safe and the adverse effects in this population. Uh, so this is definitely a huge uh, research priority that we identified and that we hope future researchers will uh, look at uh, as soon as possible. Um, moreover, um, we also found a few studies that looked at uh, psychological treatments, but these were very few. I think it was about six studies. Uh, and most of the time, uh, psychological treatment was provided in combination with antipsychotic medication. And this is a little strange, I think, because usually 
um, individuals that have experienced a stroke will be offered uh, some sort of psychological treatment as well. Um, so this uh, may be an area where it may be possible to develop better treatment forms to try out for this uh, condition. And um, we also looked at the most common treatment outcomes uh, for post-stroke psychosis. And actually we found that the most common treatment outcome that was reported was complete resolution of post-stroke psychosis. Uh, and the average time interval to complete resolution was 3.5 months. Um, so these findings uh, suggest that psychiatric management um, may be a, a reasonable approach. However, again, based on the types of uh, studies we found and so on, uh, it's unclear whether these results may be influenced by uh, publication bias uh, when it comes to presenting positive cases. Absolutely. I mean, there's huge implications there for sort of next steps for research, which we'll get onto in a little while. I wondered if I could turn to you, Vaughan, about particular um, the sort of neuroanatomical correlates of these particular psychotic symptoms. Did, did any of them, the presence of any of those symptoms correlate with any particular lesions in the brain? I mean, I think it's worth saying that the, the typical pattern of lesions in terms of laterality just basically tracks a lot of what we see in post you know, neurological syndromes as a whole. We see, you know, one of the things that came very clearly through the literature was about four-fifths of patients had a right hemisphere lesion, and we know disturbances to the right hemisphere you know, can increase the chances of psychosis in uh, epilepsy, in brain injury, and so on. In terms of particular regions, I mean, we could, we could look at the frequencies, right frontal temporal parietal regions, right caudate nucleus seem to be particularly associated with post-stroke psychosis. But it's, it's worth saying here that a lot of these are from single case studies. And there's very little work which has looked systematically at the association between lesion location and you know, particular symptoms of psychosis. Some of these studies are just starting to emerge. Ryan Darby's recent work, taking a kind of lesion mapping approach, network approach, are just starting to emerge. But the literature at the moment essentially tells us that right hemisphere lesions are more likely to lead to psychosis. But apart from that, looking at more fine-grained areas, it's really hard to say uh, with any greater degree of reliability. Which I suppose follows quite neatly into my final question for you both about what is the next step? I mean, I think one of the things Hella mentioned that is probably a massive priority, uh, treatment trials in terms of antipsychotics. Uh, they seem to be most widely used, but we know particularly in older adults, in dementia, for example, they tend to increase the risk of stroke. And so considering the similarities with this age group, um, you know, it, there may well be uh, significant adverse effects that we need to think about. And another priority is just more systematic epidemiological studies and outcome studies. And you know, a lot of the studies we saw from the literature are single cases or case series. And there are a few good larger scale outcome studies that have been kept carefully conducted, but actually there's a, a significant paucity of these. And considering that we could estimate from some of the systematic studies that the prevalence is about 5% of all stroke patients develop post-stroke psychosis, and you know, this is likely to be having a much greater clinical impact than people assume. And the other thing is looking at some of, you know, kind of continuing and developing studies that look more systematically in neuroanatomical correlates 
I think it's going to be very important for understanding post-stroke psychosis. But actually, I think it's going to be also important in terms of contributing to our understanding of the neurocognitive mechanisms of psychosis, delusions and hallucinations, which is, um, I think, something we really need to develop. Vaughan and Hilla, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. So that was Hella Stangeland and Vaughan Bell. We were talking about their recent review in the JNMP, looking at post-stroke psychosis. And you can, of course, download that for free on jnmp.bmj.com. And thank you so much for listening.